I'm making a giant multi-gigapixel mosaic of the Milky Way. Would you spend 18 months building a custom 100 megapixel camera to take pictures of snowflakes? Welcome to Tech First with John Kutsir. Snowflake might be an insult in 2020, <laughs> but snowflakes are widely recognized to be objects of rare and fleeting beauty, fleeting especially. Capturing that beauty is surprisingly hard, but one of former Microsoft CTO Nathan Mirvold's passions is photographing amazing snowflakes. And he succeeded in making the highest resolution snowflake photos ever. To learn how and find out why, we're chatting with Nathan Mirvold. Welcome, Nathan. Well, thank you. Hey, pleasure to have you here. Let's start right at the top with the most obvious question. How did snowflakes become a passion? Well, when I was a kid, I saw pictures of snowflakes. And of course, uh, around the holidays time, we see them in that motif everywhere. These beautiful, faceted crystals, almost like gems, but, but more fragile than gems. And as I got older, I sort of learned why they look that way. I also became a photographer and I started doing pictures of food and of landscapes and so forth. And uh, snowflakes are something that we don't think of as food, yet most of us in the North America anyway, spend our whole summer drinking melted snowflakes. Right? <laughs> it, it, without snowflakes, we would have no water. It, it is the form of snow that allows us to meter it out over a period of many months. And around now, the new snows come, but we'll have enough water hopefully then for the next year. Uh, so it's a super important thing to humans, but snowflakes are little. Mm -hmm. You know, they're between a millimeter to maybe a giant one is 10 millimeters across, but that's very rare. And sometimes they'll stick together so that you get a clump that's bigger, but, and they don't last very long at all. No. And yet there's billions of them, billions and billions and billions of them falling, you know, probably right now across the Northern part of the continent. Yes. Uh, so you now all of each of these factors makes it really hard to photograph the things <laughs> uh, because they're small. You need to use a microscope effectively. Yes. And because they're very fragile, you can't take the snowflake from outside and bring it inside. No, 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 no. Well, what you'll have is a puddle by the time yes. it gets in. Uh, in fact, it, one of the most interesting things when you start to work with snowflakes the way I, I do is you watch them change before your eyes. And they can both grow and shrink. Wow. Because mostly what snowflakes are is snowflakes are a crystal of water ice that came directly from a vapor onto the flake. So it's not, if you think of a sugar crystal, for example, or some ice crystals will grow on water, right? Mm -hmm. On the surface of a pond, for example. Well, here it's quite different. The snowflake is trying to grow and it's in an area around it where there are molecules of water vapor bouncing yes. around. And 
it's because it's bouncing on the gas that the molecules can be kind of picky and only go to the spots where it seems best for them. Yes. What it has to do with the crystal symmetries of water, and that's what makes them beautiful. If you just freeze water, you can get some crystals, but they don't look like snowflakes. It's amazing. It really is amazing. I showed some of the photos and I'll show them again a little later. And I want to talk about the pictures that you took and why you selected them and everything like that. And also the process that you went through to be able to do this. Uh, maybe we'll start there. So you're best known for being the CTO of Microsoft, but you did multiple things before that. And you've done a lot after Microsoft, a, a huge amount, actually. You're the founder of Intellectual Ventures. You have more than 850 patents to your name. What did you have to invent for this project? I mean, you said you can't take it inside. You probably can't really take it anywhere. I mean, you can't touch the thing, right? right. What did you have to invent right. for this project? Well, first I had to meet someone who knew about this. <laughs> and uh, it turns out there's only a few people in the world of snowflakes who really have, have learned all of what it takes to do this. In the 19th century, it was a self-taught farmer in Vermont, and he became known as Snowflake Bentley. <laughs> That's wonderful. And more recently, there's a, a physics professor at Caltech named Ken Liebrecht. And Ken built his own microscope to go photograph snowflakes. Snowflake Bentley had an awesome setup where his film and other stuff was inside of his house but then, like, the microscope sort of projected out through the wall. Was oh, wow. That way, the snowflakes could remain outside. Well, I met Ken, and Ken was very helpful in describing how he had built a snowflake microscope. Now, I figured, hey, I ought to try to do something better than that, because, at least in resolution, because Ken had done his maybe initially 15 or 20 years ago, uh, digital cameras have improved resolution. What would it take to make the highest resolution snowflake photos so I could make really big prints of them? Well, it turns out there's a whole series of things. I had to build my own microscope. Yes. Now, for the frame of the microscope, you want something very, very stiff because you're trying to hold it very still. But you also don't want to use metal. And the reason is that metal expands and contracts. Right. And the longer a piece of metal you have in building your microscope, the, a lot of microscopes will have a main post that they hang everything off of. Well, that post is going to get larger or smaller by millionths of a meter, which is called a, a micron. And a micron, it turns out, is a lot. <laughs> you can't afford that. Uh, so the frame of my microscope is built out of carbon fiber. Interesting. And uh, I designed it. I built it. It's really messy working with all the epoxy. but Because uh, you got to make sure you don't remain permanently stuck there. Yeah. Okay, but then snowflakes can be relatively deep. A flattish snowflake could be as much as 10 microns deep. Okay, wow. And that is deep enough that when you're taking pictures at high resolution, it isn't all in focus. Yes. And you've, we've all seen photos where, you know, you, something in the foreground here is in focus and the rest isn't. Well, that happens here. So 
uh, I had been working for a few years developing a, a system for taking photographs that uses a computer-controlled set of motors to move the camera very slightly in between each picture. Wow. And it typically will move it by as little as a micron, one micron. Now, a human hair is typically 80 to 100 microns. That is incredibly precise, moving by one micron. Yes. Now, of course, this that thing has got metal in it. Yes. You, have, you can't avoid the metal, but then you have this problem. How do you attach the metal frame of that a precision stage to a carbon fiber? I didn't find a way to do that. There's a company that has built these stages for me for use in a laboratory for a number of years. And it's a company in the Vancouver area. Okay. And so we called them up and we said, so what's the coldest your stage could be? <laughs> and uh, they said, well, I don't know. Would it be okay if we just tested it in a household freezer? And we said, sure, that will be great. <laughs> So they did, and it turns out their their stage is good enough to maintain that one micron accuracy across a wide temperature range. Amazing, amazing. Well, then you, you just you, each step like then brings you to another thing, which is how do you pick these things up? Yeah, that was my question. I've been thinking this whole time. How do you capture? The, the snowflake, where do you go out and get it? Do you catch it on a piece of paper or <laughs> what do you do? So I have some pieces of black foam core board and you either hold them out or you prop some of them out wherever you are and you try to get snowflakes to land on them. Now, if there's wind, the problem is the snowflake can pick back up. Mm -hmm. So I've got a velvet covered one I'll use for wind and that will, that's stickier effectively to the snowflakes. But then you have to pick it up from there. And to do that, I use a tiny, tiny sable brush. So this is a brush like a watercolor painter would use, but it's size triple zero, which is really little. <laughs> and uh, you have to get it cold up front. Yes. So you have to get it out so it's, uh, it's uh, at ambient temperature. And it turns out it's whenever it's, snowing it's cold yes that's pretty obvious it's also usually pretty dry out and so it's easy to get a static charge on that brush oh, wow. and if i have to i've got a little cloth i can rub but usually you don't have to because there's so much static just out there in the air that it picks it up yes so you touch the snowflake and you're in some camping equipment. The, the kind I get comes from uh, cooling CPU chips. Nice. Makes sense. Well, then you have to cool those because what they do is they pump heat across, but they have to get the heat out. So I've got a set of a bunch of equipment that is from water cooling gaming PCs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Really intense gamers run their PCs super hot so that they're getting the maximum performance and to, to keep them from melting they have to have these water cooling systems yes so i've got one of those but of course you can't put water in it <laughs> so like initially i thought well this will be easy i'll go down to the auto supply store antifreeze 
and I'll buy any freeze, right? And it'll say, it says rated to minus 100F, right? Yes. No. It's rated to 100F in an engine where it just has to stay liquid enough that the engine starts and the engine heats it up. Oh. So it turns out it, it winds up like jello yes. at, at even minus 20. Wow. So there's a special antifreeze solution that you have to use. So we use that. Well, all of that, there's that piece of copper cooling area up near the top of my, my microscope stage. I still needed something clear to shoot through to see with the, the microscope yes. or just with a snowflake. So I use artificial sapphire. Wow. Uh, artificial sapphire is used Phone in screens, the right? things. It's used in the crystals of high-end watches. Okay. Because it won't scratch. So it's super hard. But it also has almost eight times the thermal conductivity of glass. So I can get my sapphire to ambient temperature or even colder than ambient temperature before my snowflake gets there. So it doesn't melt upon contact because that's no fun. Yes, yes. That destroys the whole purpose right there. But you also have to image it and you need the right lighting, correct? And you had to invent yeah. a new type of lighting, really, because, I mean, light can impart heat, right? And when you're dealing with such delicate structures that you already mentioned that they can grow, they can shrink, they can sublimate as well as melt. Yeah. And, and so what did you have to do for lighting? I mean, what did you first try? And then how'd you find out it didn't well, work? We tried, uh, we tried using LED lighting, continuous LED lighting, and... That just didn't work. It, it, it was putting too much energy on the snowflake. Mm -hmm. And that meant it either melted or sublimated way faster than it should. Uh, the other problem is if you use continuous light, then you need to use the shutter in your camera. Yes. Well, but the problem with having the shutter is then that makes things shake and that's yes. not a good when you're dealing with frequent like microns of space i could see that yes so i found a company in japan that made special led lights that were used for something called machine vision in you mostly in quality control so you have some conveyor belt coming by and you've got parts on it and you want to say is this part malformed or is some other problem and Every automated factory has got some version of this. Well, for the ones that run really fast, they had this problem that they were getting blurry pictures. Sure. So this company in Japan developed an LED lighting system that is pulsed. Yeah. And it's pulsed very short pulses. So we can make a pulse that is a microsecond, a millionth of a second. Wow. Now, that's really great for two perspectives. One is, in that millionth of a second, we're not getting a lot of heat transfer, <laughs> which is really good. And over a period of time, there's multiple pulses, but the pulses are spaced out enough that the average amount of power is low. Good. The other thing that's great is that it allows us to freeze motion. So if there was any vibration, in the uh, system, this tends to remove it. 
Now, this company was going back and forth with me. They shipped us a bunch of lights and controllers. And I had to, I was a customer that required a lot of technical things from them. And they finally said, well, what industry are you in? (laughs) Not quite in an industry here, at least. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Um, So uh, they were pretty surprised that I had found using their lights for this purpose. Yes, yes. And then the whole outfit that I'm describing has to be outside. Yeah. And so part of snowflake photography is you try to find a hotel or a rental cottage or something else that has a porch. It's like <laughs> really important. <laughs> yes. Now, sometimes I've been in high rise hotels that have a little balcony. Mm-hmm. A lot of them have like a balcony that's sort of this pathetic balcony that it's it's, it's not, not really a balcony. balcony. <laughs> you can like sit out there and relax because it's so damn small. But hey, that's enough. <laughs> and then you have to find the right place because snowflakes are very temperature sensitive. Yes, this kind of snowflake that that's up here is uh, a kind. Well, not so much this type, but the previous type. Is called a uh, stellated dendrite. Yes. So it's star-shaped, and it is, by a dendritic, it means that each one of the initial arms keeps growing, but then it nucleates other little arms that go off, and other arms that go off those arms, and so on. Yes. Now, all of that happens because water wants to form hexagonal crystals. Right. And... In this environment where snowflakes form, you get some event that starts a little plate forming. And then all of these other water molecules come and they want to join, but they only want to join where they make this hexagonal pattern. Yes. Now, the reason that they're approximately symmetric is that approximately the same things are happening on each side. Interesting. It's not always fully symmetric. And when it's not fully symmetric, you get something that's a little bit different on one side or another. Yes. Now, this really nice stellated dendrite process really only happens when it's about minus 15 C or minus 5 Fahrenheit. Okay. And that turns out that's really cold. You know, like (laughs) I naively thought, okay, I build this thing and now I'll go stay at ski resorts. And I just won't go skiing. I'll just, you know, open up the balcony and grab some snowflakes. But most ski resorts are in places that are too warm. Yes. Believe it or not. Uh, Particularly where they put the accommodations is too warm. You know, maybe up at the very top of the hill when the wind is blowing, it's colder. So that means you have to go and mostly I've taken uh, snowflake pictures in Canada or Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. I saw Northwest Territories and Alaska as well. Yeah. It's, well, each place has its own character, as it turns out. There's a town called Timmins, Ontario, that I go to. And Timmins is great because there's a hotel that has rental cottages with porches. That's that's super big. Cottage country Um, is huge in Ontario. Yes. And, uh, but the other great thing about Timmins is that it's north of the Great Lakes. 
And so it's in this area that's called lake effect snow, where water that evaporates from the Great Lakes tends to go fall there. Okay. And so in January, it uh, will typically snow 20 days out of the month. Wow. Lots of opportunity. Same thing in February. It's great. (laughs) So then Fairbanks uh, is very different. Fairbanks is way inland. And it doesn't get that much snow. Mm-hmm. Now, it stays mm-hmm. cold all winter, so whatever snow falls stays. But it, it gets a fraction of the snow that you would get in Timmins. But yes, there's times it's not snowing in Timmins, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Even the odds are with you. Um, or, or worse, it warms up. Yes, yes. You know, if it warms up to being near the freezing point, the snowflakes look terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In not, fact, so, pre- yeah. not so precise anymore. Well, it, one of the flakes that we're showing here, if you can go back to them, yep. uh, I'll show you what a uh, snowflakes pox looks like. Which one? Okay, so this is a fantastic, uh, go back, yeah, yep. uh, that, bottom, that one right there. So you can see that these little dots on it. Um, mm-hmm. And those little dots are something called grapple. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, who knew, right? I didn't yes. know. There's a name for it. Grapple is when there is a cloud that has super cooled air or water droplets in it. Okay. They're cold. They're below the freezing point, but they don't have any nucleation points. There's nothing for them to form on. Okay. And as the snowflake falls through them, these tiny spheres will start glomping on. And this is a fine, this is still a good looking flake to me. I think a purist might sniffle that it has some grapple, but uh, they can get so grapple covered that they come down almost like a ball. Yes. yes. And, and really not, you don't see that anymore. And that usually happens when you get a little bit of warmth down below. And then Yellowknife is the other place I've been. Yellowknife has a Great Slave Lake right beside it, and that helped yes. get more snow than Fairbanks would have, but it's also kind of deeply inland. Yes, yes, interesting. We have a question here that might be interesting for you from LinkedIn, and this is Gavin Smith, and he said, have you considered using DLP light for structured light production? <laughs> Was that something that you took uh-huh. into account? Yeah, so DLP is a light projector. It's a technology that was developed by Texas Instruments originally for making projection TVs. And so it's a chip that has millions of mirrors on it. Yes. And in general, if you have an approach that uses light beams, it's called a structured light approach. And the cool thing about structured light is that it would allow you to make a 3D model of the snowflake. Oh, wow. Now, it turns out DLP doesn't work for this kind of microscopy for a couple of reasons. It uh, What's better if you're trying to do that structured light thing is something called a, a fan beam laser because mm-hmm. you, you can focus that better. And, and I may try to add that in, in the future so I can make you know 3D print meter-sized version of 3D print. <laughs> That would be very, very interesting. 
I wanted to ask, I mean, you probably took thousands of snowflake photos. Um, oh, okay. What's okay. that? So each of the photos that you see there is a composite of between 100 and 500 shots. Wow. That's almost Which like... One is that? And then, and, you know, if, we, if I fly up to the, the north to do this, we usually stay for three or four days and... Yeah, we'll take 50,000 shots. Wow. More that, that is a lot of shots. And it reminds me a little bit of taking astronomical photographs or photographs of stars and galaxies where you'll often stack five minutes or yep. 10 minutes or hours of viewing or something <laughs> like that. And then, yep, of course, you have the chip. What's that? <laughs> I also do that. <laughs> okay, excellent. So yeah, cooling is is in your nature because you got to cool down your tube and everything, right? There's lots of challenges yeah. there as well. When did you feel like you found the right one? I mean, you took fifty thousand per trip. You know, well, how long did it take you before you felt? You know, I love that shot. That's a great shot. I'm that's a keeper. Well, you, you progress over time. I mean, the, I think the first day I tried this, we. Everything was pathetic. <laughs> so there was no doubt. <laughs> what was a, you know, it takes a while to learn how to do it and everything else. And Ken Liebrich, this uh, professor at uh, Caltech, I was sending him pictures every now and then. And he would, eventually I got to the point, he says, you're now Snowflake Limited. <laughs> I said, what does that mean? He said, well, you know how to make pictures. You just don't have very good Yes, yes. You know, it's sort of like a, a fashion photographer who's stuck in a place where no one dresses up and they're all ugly. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so then it but, was simply a matter of continuing to grow, perhaps with technical expertise, but finding the right snowflake. Yes, and it, one thing that is amazing is it changes almost minute by minute. You've got a snowstorm and that snowstorm you think is going for five hours. But if you're out there with a you know, piece of foam core looking at the, the flakes, oh my God, they can change. Yes. And they can go, you know, there's this thing about no two snowflakes being alike. And that's not true for most snowflakes. Most snowflakes, numerically on the planet, aren't these perfect stellated dendrite beauties. Yes. They're a simple hexagonal rod or a simple hexagonal plate or something like that. But you can go from making just really boring plates to suddenly things that are amazing like that. Yes. yes. And then all of a sudden you're, you're like mobilizing, like, oh my God, I got to get this. Yes. Yes. It's amazing. Nathan, I wanted to talk a little bit as well, uh, just about you and a little bit about your life because you are, uh, you're a polymath. You have multiple passions. Cooking is one of them of, of all things. Nobody would expect that a technologist <laughs> would be into cooking. You've written thousands of pages of recipes for your cookbook series. You've published peer reviewed research on planetary science. You've done work in paleontology. You've done work on climate science. You worked with Stephen Hawking on quantum theories of gravitation. What drives this? What well, I, I'm curious about things. Is I'm curious about finding things out and trying to understand something that people don't, or trying to understand something that I don't. You know, acquisition of a new skill 
like learning how to deal with these snowflakes. Uh, well, that's a learning thing. But I had to learn a ton of different stuff about carbon fiber engineering and, <laughs> and optics and uh, LEDs and so forth in all of the way up there. But that's not the problem. That's actually part of the joy of it. Yes. You know, if it had turned out to be super simple to do this, well, I would have done it, but then I would have gone on something else. You know, that, you know what that reminds me of? Uh, schools, in some cases, have turned to project-based learning, where they're not teaching you, they are teaching the ABCs, and you definitely need to learn mathematics and other things in some sort of structured way, but there's a process of discovery of learning what you don't know and, and acquiring the, the, the skills and the knowledge that you need to know to accomplish a goal in doing a project. This reminds me of that. Yeah, well, the, the thing about a project is it gives you a motivation that uh, now at this point in my life I have sufficient excess motivation to pick up almost any crazy book on any technology and read it and I don't really need an excuse but it always helps having an excuse yes. and it's also in a different way that's why I like photography that's why I like the snowflake photography. Yeah, everyone goes outside and says, oh, it's snowing, it's beautiful. And then you're like, okay, you turn around, you're done. And whereas if you're running out there with the phone cord warden looking at it, uh, it makes you, because you have this mission, it makes you really focus on the thing and really understand the snowflakes and stop and take a moment, both to appreciate them and then to figure out, oh, this one's so good, I better not take any more moments. I better get that one quickly onto the slide and away we go. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Well, this has been wonderful. Uh, this has been interesting. It's always, there's always a, a real joy in listening to somebody talk about their passion. When somebody's passionate about something and interested and curious, uh, it's always interesting to listen to, to learn from. And I've enjoyed that chatting with you here. One thing that this podcast is about is tech that's changing the world and innovators who are shaping the future. You've done both. What's the next act? Uh, what are you most passionate about now in terms of creation and innovation? Well, I continue to create these photos. That's one thing I do. I'm making a giant multi-gigapixel mosaic of the Milky Way. Wow. That's another things. I've done three or four trips to the deserts to uh, stay up all night taking pictures. For that, I think we have about 170,000 frames that we're going to be analyzing and stacking together. Oh, now, you need your whole, you need Azure or AWS to help you with all well, this. Well, actually, so we've gone back and forth on that. The the good news about using Azure or AWS is you have lots of processors. The problem is we don't process them that much. You have to get them there. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, uh, you know, it'd be days uh, of slowly bringing them in. But uh, we're actually building a small multiprocessor system to, to do this, in part because they want to take it with me because... Yes. One problem with doing this kind of computational photography is you're in the little cottage in Timmins and you think, 
did it really turn out? Yes. And because each one is a composite of 500 shot, you don't really know. Yes. Maybe you kind of guess, but, uh, you know, I no have way. to ask, I have yeah. to ask, what does Nathan Mirvold consider to be a small multiprocessor system? Well, I want something that'll fit in a Pelican case so I can haul it to the cottage. Yep. yep. So, so that's, I think we're only going to do uh, 16 systems. They'll probably be like four cores each. Okay. Okay. Very, very good. What chips? Well, so <laughs> this was, we were all set to go on this with sort of very high-end multiprocessor chips. But then it turns out that some of the software that we use, because some of, I write my own software for a bunch of this, but not for everything. Well, some of the software was adapted by its writers to using GPUs. Yes, of course. Hey, right. All, it all turned out really fancy, high-end computer systems to remove don't have any provision for GPUs. <laughs> so in fact, what we're more likely to do is to take 16 of these little... Uh, Intel Nook, or I'm not sure how to say it. They not, I think they say it. It's supposed to rhyme with truck. But the little mini PCs, yes. with, those have gotten powerful enough that they have enough RAM, and they are starting to add GPUs to them. So that's cool. probably cool. what. We're cool. Or you could buy a whack load of, I don't know, new MacBooks or something like that. Grab the M1 chip out and uh, see if those work. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, There's but, probably uh, all kinds of security stopping you from doing anything with that. But <laughs> Well, the, the other problem with laptops is we really don't need all those screens. I, exactly. Screen. You'd have to rip them all apart. <laughs> Nathan, this has been a real pleasure. I want to thank you for joining us and sharing your passion for snowflakes and your passion for other things as well. Okay. Well, thank you. Hey, for everybody else, thank you for joining us on Tech First. My name is John Kutsir. I appreciate you being along for the show. You'll be able to get a full transcript of this in about a week at johnkutsir.com, and the story at Forbes will come out shortly thereafter. Full video is always available on YouTube. Thanks for joining. Until next time, this is John Kutsir with Tech First.